Welcome back to the Trojan Talk podcast, where we are suddenly talking about a football season again. Not a hypothetical football season, not a potential football season, an actual verifiable official <laughs> football season that was announced Thursday as the Pac-12 had its vote among the conference's CEO group, which is always a fancy-sounding title to me. But anyways, uh, they voted yes on football. Games will start November 6th and 7th. Uh, certainly a lot to discuss about the start date. We don't have a schedule yet. Uh, there's still a lot of things that are not totally clear, but we'll dive into all of that because I am here. I'm Ryan Young, and I'm here with Max Brown, back on the podcast, former USC quarterback, the Trojans analyst, our Trojansports.com analyst. Max, how you doing? I am great. Fired up. We're going to have football this fall, even though it'll be, even though it'll be condensed. USC football this fall is a great sign. So, and we kind of knew it was coming, so it wasn't a surprise. Like, but still, it was just fun to see it actually unveiled and and made official what was kind of your just mindset yeah i think it's interesting i think you hit the nail on the head in terms of we kind of knew it was coming uh the hand was kind of forced last week when we when we talked even on this podcast you knew it was coming but hey nothing's official until it's official and i think that the conference at large has to thank kind of usc for really kind of moving the needle forward in that and um obviously the 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 big 10 had a big impact there but it it felt like USC was kind of leading the charge, and if you're listening to this, you're a USC fan, and that's that's the mo of what USC football is about for the conference. Hopefully, that transo- translates over onto the field, and they're leading the charge in terms of wins for the conference and championships for the conference. But uh, I think USC deserves a lot of credit, and uh, love what Mike Bone and the players did, and um, great great sign. I'm going to just build off the point you just made that USC was a major factor in this. And I think that everyone always wants USC to kind of assert some control or leverage or power in the conference. And in this case, I think they had to, I don't think we get to this point without what happened last week and what happened last week doesn't happen without USC. Um, it was interesting. We talked to Mike bone Thursday night after the announcement and he made an unprompted emphasis to highlight the player letter, the football player's open letter the Governor Gavin Newsom last week as a real instigator. They got the ball rolling here. Trying to and, take some credit. But what was telling was that after he talked about it for a while, he was asked what was kind of the telling moment that for him that made it clear that, that letter had an impact. And he goes, well, when, when the governor's not talking to the conference before that, and now he is, that's pretty telling. It was like, damn, okay. Yeah. So basically he was acknowledging that the Pac-12 was having no dialogue with Gavin Newsom in his office before last week. And then the day after that letter is posted, uh, Gavin Newsom and Larry Scott are talking and the ball gets rolling and here we are. So, you know, I think framing it that way, I think you have to give the players a little credit, but also give USC credit for – mobilizing around that letter and really taking charge, being very involved with the conference and how to go about this, uh, taking charge with L.A. County and uh, partnering with UCLA on making sure those discussions happened and getting us to this point. Now, let's go over a few of the details here, what we know and what we don't know. Like I said, the season will start November 6th or 7th. 
not October 31st, as many had hoped, and as I think USC had preferred, according to my sources. The, that will mean that they can play six games leading into December 19th weekend, which will be the Pac-12 championship game for two teams and a cross-division consolation game for the rest of the teams. So everyone will play seven games, but to call it a seven-game season to me is a little misleading because yep. you know you talk about the regular season, well, it's going to be a six-game regular season, and from that we'll decide who plays in the championship game. And so it's, it's definitely not ideal, and especially when the, the Big Ten is playing eight and everyone else is playing more than eight and you're playing six plus the championship game, you are behind. But we'll get into all that. We don't know what the schedule is yet. We don't know how they're going to determine the one crossover game in those first six. Obviously, uh, everyone will play the other five teams from their division and then one cross-division game. And that opens up to some real competitive imbalance uh, because obviously some are going to play the best team from the other division, some are going to play the worst team from the other division, and it's going to count towards the conference standings. So you may go 4-1 and one in your division and then have to play Oregon in the cross-division game and lose that, and now you're 4-2, and two, and someone else in your division went 4-1, and one, plays Oregon State and wins that, and they're, they're the ones going to the Pac-12 championship game, not you. So it's not ideal, again. I think that's going to be just a common term. We apply to a lot of things here. But very interesting, and we'll be eager to see that schedule come out next week. Max, what were just some overall takeaways about the way this was unveiled? And Yeah, overall takeaways, I'll start with the Mike Bone side of things. I think in a world where we've been taking things week by week, it feels like for the past four or five months, uh, the fact that USC, Mike Bone, Clay Helton, they had a plan of in, in a, a plan of attack in place, ready to go. They were aware the Big Ten was moving, like you said, mobilized. I like that term. And so I, I do think Mike Bone, I, I don't blame him for trying to take some credit for those players for leading that charge. And uh, you mentioned it last week, the pressure from within, kind of getting um, the conference over the top and getting us back to football. I think it was sparked by... Sparked by the Big Ten, kind of elevated by USC, and then it, it, it took a life of its own with the conference. So, yeah, I, I love your points there, and I think Mike Bone, his, his points are spot on. I like that he's taking a little credit. On the other side, you mentioned the scheduling stuff. That, to me, is by far the most interesting dynamic of everything. Uh, two points, everything you said I agree with. Uh, the only things I would add, and John Wilner, the, the, the popular Pac-12 voice, he brought up a good point in, in which a, a fan was complaining with him of, Oh well, what happens if one team gets Oregon State, another team gets Oregon? Like we want to play Oregon yeah. State, we want to we want to go undefeated. Well, wait a sec here. If the ultimate goal is to try to get a spot in the college football playoff, you should want to play Oregon. And yes. I think yes. my my mindset has changed. Of wait a sec, that's right. And so with that, I would expect that crossover game to be USC Oregon. I really, really would, um, because I think there is a drop off. After that, at this stage in the game, if you're an ASU fan listening to this, if you're a Utah fan listening to this, if you're a Washington or a Cal fan up north, you might say, well, wait a sec, we want that game. But I think if you're trying to position your teams to get in the college football playoff, um, that's the game that needs to happen. And some of you listeners might be saying, Max, college football playoff, we're never going to get in with the seven-game schedule. Or Ryan, to your point, the six-game schedule and a bonus. But to me, I'm not in that camp. I, if you're saying the Big Ten's playing eight games – and the, the Pac-12 is playing seven, 
a seven and zero Pac twelve champ versus an, uh, a seven and one Big Ten champ. That's a conversation, and we'll see who that convert that who that team is. Don't get me wrong; the, the chances are, are slim, I think, for the Pac twelve. But that's at least a conversation. I think there is still hope. I think if a team in the Pac twelve runs the table, style points are going to matter more than anything we've ever seen, and it's at least they can at least have a shot at this. So those are the things that that that, that kind of come to mind for me. Um, and yeah, yeah, like I said, style points are going to matter. And, uh, I think just that, that, that scheduling dynamic and, oh, and the last point with the scheduling I, I want to touch on was I saw a point that, and I haven't read details on this, but that they do not want to play repeat mode when it comes to schedules in 2021. And what I mean by that is if a team goes to Otzen this year and Otzen has, the uh the the wild occupancy of zero in the stands this year, <laughs> right. which is obviously a huge advantage for whatever team has to go on the road there in twenty in twenty twenty. Well, in twenty twenty one, they're gonna uh, the it's gonna kind of hey the show goes on type of thing, and uh, the the home and home does not restart. I guess is the best way to put it, which. None of this is ideal in 2020, but that's an important factor for, I mean, I'm from the, I'm from the Seattle area that, hey, if you're a Washington team going on the road to Otzen versus the Oregon Ducks coming to Seattle and playing at Husky Stadium, that is a huge deal when you talk about positioning yourself for, uh, for big things in 2021. So all those scheduling factors are fascinating to me. I'm excited to see who uh, USC's crossover game is. Great points. I wrote a column last week about what I thought a Pac-12 schedule could or, or should look like, and I made the exact point you just made. I think that they need to be aware that they're already fighting a PR battle. There's already people frustrated that they're the last ones in, that they're playing the fewest games, and everyone is harping on the playoff component. Are you going to have a viable chance to actually be considered for the college football playoff? I think they need to be aware of that, and they need to prioritize that in the scheduling. And even if it's possible that USC and Oregon meet in the Pac-12 championship game, I would still schedule them in the cross-division game in the regular season, quote-unquote, because it's just those, those – we all agree those are probably your two best chances for a playoff team in the Pac-12 – and to give those teams the best chance to be considered, they have to have the absolute best resume possible. Again, we'll just keep saying unideal. Is it unideal to play the same team twice in seven games? That's uh, unusual, I guess, is maybe a better word. But if I'm USC, I'd rather have that than have some hollow game against Oregon State on my schedule. Because that's going to be held against me in the end. If USC yep. runs the table and plays Oregon State or plays a Stanford team that's still down uh, like they were last year, that's going to be held against them as, as a hollow seven-game, six-game schedule. If they play Oregon in the, in the regular season and Oregon in the championship game and happen to win both and Oregon hasn't lost any other game, now you've got a conversation. Now you go, wow, you've got a 7-0 USC team that beat an Oregon team twice. Now we have a conversation. To me, that's the only way that you get in the conversation, or vice versa, for Oregon. If they run the table and they beat USC twice, and USC goes 5-2 uh, and two overall, then that's the best case for them to get in the playoff. So I think that 
you I don't know what other factors they would be considering for the scheduling, but to me, you prioritize, look, we're already at a disadvantage. We are going to make sure that our teams that we think have the best chance have the best chance. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And I think uh, if you're an opposing Pac-12 team playing USC, it, it, it's in the same token because I think USC, in terms of consistency – I think they're the most consistent. Like You know what you're going to get. The volatility for USC in 2020, uh, I think, is at as little as any team conference. And what I mean by that is Oregon's replacing a ton. There's a world where they, they drop off a little bit. I think they're going to be a great football team. But there is a world where, hey, their offense is, is underwhelming and they're not as good as we think. Versus I think USC, you know if you're a Pac-12 team, you are getting a tough opponent this year and some of you USC fans that are completely anti-Helton might be rolling your eyes hearing me say that but I would push back on that I think you know it's going to operate in one realm with a lot of continuity coming back I know it's a new defensive coordinator in Todd Orlando but a lot of experience and so if we were the Oregon podcast if we were the Cal podcast and Cal's got some pieces coming back they're saying, hey, give us USC on the schedule so when you kind of look at it through the inverse it's an interesting dynamic as well yeah, and you know this is a USC podcast, but I don't think that either of us are biased. I think we kind of are objective and tell you how it is. And when we're saying that USC deserves credit in this process, I truly believe that. Another point you made, Max, is that they stayed ready all along. And the reason why the Pac-12 is not starting October 31st, I mean, they can talk about the six-week ramp-up and everything else, but the reality is that not every team felt it was going to be ready by that, by that point. And that's because not every team has been consistently training and working toward the possibility of a season. A couple schools sent their guys home once the season was canceled. And, you know, a couple schools have kind of really been hampered by the local county restrictions like Stanford. But that since mid-June, USC has been working out in some form or fashion with the initial voluntary workouts, then more recently having 12 hours a week with the coaches, uh, for strength and conditioning, for team meetings, for one-on-one drills. And they were acting as if we're on call. We're going to stay ready. We, do, we don't know what's going to happen. Are we going to have a season in January and a training camp in December? Is there a chance it starts earlier? We are going to stay ready. And if every team in the conference had done that, we're probably starting a season earlier, which is where we come around to the main criticism that can be levied against the Pac-12 here is that as a whole, the conference lacked, to me, an overall plan. They were not proactive. Yeah, I, I'm going to preface this real fast by saying I think the Quidel partnership for the, the daily rep result testing machines was huge and very smart, very savvy, and not every other conference has that. The Big Ten is coming up with something similar. But otherwise, the Pac-12 and Big Ten are, the, are kind of the – the shining lights in that regard and give the Pac-12 all the credit in the world for reaching that deal with Quidel and getting those machines in place, which put them in position to get over the hump with the state and uh, county public health authorities. That said, even with that, we don't see any real plan on their part for, okay, now we have this equipment, let's prioritize getting the fall season played. It's very clear they were content to wait and play in the winter as long as they had a partner in that game. And once the Big Ten got off that track and, and maneuvered, they had to react and, and rally. And that's a bad position to be in. And that's why we're here now. That's 
because they had no they had no overall overarching plan of hey let's stay ready we're gonna we're gonna pounce if we have an opportunity to play this fall. That's why most of their teams aren't or not all their teams are in position to play right now, and, and we have to wait. The Mountain West Conference made the same announcement and is starting two weeks earlier. The Mountain West is starting October twenty fourth. That just further underscored the frustration by many at the Pac-12 for starting so late, for starting two weeks after the Big Ten and the Mountain West. And that, that'll be one interesting thing to follow is, like, head coaches. How did they manage their roster? And a big point is the mental shift of going from, hey, your season's canceled, to two months later saying, all right, we're back on. Players that checked out, uh, that's going to be a tough switch for them, and head coaches are going to deserve credit here in three months for the guys that had their rosters locked in, and it feels like USC has that recipe to have guys that are locked in versus other campuses are, are not like that. And just to word your point in a different in a different wording, the, the difference of seven days could be very crucial. The, the reality of, of having it be six weeks of prep instead of five, it kind of felt like a lot of people were talking either four or six, but even five weeks. If you said, hey, we're starting the very week earlier, like you said, and you allowed the Pac-12 to have an eighth game, and so they were able to match the Big Ten, uh, and that narrative that, hey, the, the Pac-12 is playing way less games, uh, it wouldn't be the case. And I think that those seven days, in hindsight, could be such a big deal because to me, as the player, I don't know if five versus six weeks is all that much of a difference, but come Christmas time, when that CFP meeting happens, that could be the world of difference in terms of a Pac-12 team getting in. So that is one thing that I commend Mike Bone and, and Clay Helton for being on the, the, the side of, hey, we're ready to play. Let, let's play sooner. Uh, I was making the point on, on SiriusXM last week of, hey, let, let's do it in four. Well, let's make it happen in four. I think, that's, I think that's reasonable. The reality is player safety, I understand it. Six weeks, you want to prevent injuries, and that's a whole other storyline when we talk about seeing what happened in the NFL last week. Does that happen in college sports? Does it happen for some teams more than others? But I really, really would have pushed the conference to try to get it in in five because I think that extra week to get a buffer, if, if there happens to be a, a game that gets pushed back and the ability to match the, the, the Big Ten, I think is really, really important. And uh, I would push back on the conference and say I, I think they could have got it done in five. Well, see, here again, this is, this is why – this is exactly why the Pac-12 framed it as it did as a seven-game season when I'm calling it a six-game season plus a championship game. Uh, they're, they're actually two weeks behind the Big Ten. And yep, the good Big point. Ten, the, the Big Ten has an eight-game season, but that that's an actual eight-game season plus plus the final week, plus the, the, the Big Ten championship game. So it's a difference of two games, really. Good point, and, yep. But, but going back to that, I, I do give USC credit for staying ready and for staying poised, and I do know that USC was one of the schools that wanted to play October 31st. I know that from good sources. That's where they came down. There were some other schools that were also aligned with that. There were some that weren't, and this is where we're at. The, the one thing I did respect or understand when the Pac-12 officials were pressed on that Thursday was the point that Oregon president – and the chair of the CEO group, Michael Schill, made about we wanted to do this together. We didn't want a competitive disadvantage. We didn't want a few teams to have a bye week and the rest not. We didn't want a few teams to enter week two having already played a game under their belt while the other teams are kind of shaking off that rust. We wanted to have everything 
together, aligned. Um, give the Pac-12 credit. I mean, unlike the unrest in the Big Ten, they have been pretty much on the same page through this process, and that remains so. So I get that point, but it's still going to be criticized that they were not better mobilized as a conference to act quicker. And again, this Quidel partnership was announced the first week of September, and yet the pestering of the state and county health officials, at least publicly, didn't start until a couple weeks later. And you could say, well, why were you not immediately transitioning your viewpoint of, hey, we have this advanced testing capacity now, way ahead of the schedule we thought we were going to have it on. Let's adjust our thinking and let's say, let's leverage this and see what we can do this fall. And that wasn't their approach. And then they were forced into finding a way to find a fall season. And as a result, they're behind everybody else. Anything else I missed, Max? I think that's it. I'm pumped for this next segment. The, uh, okay. the five storylines will be dope. So Max and I are going to give you our top five storylines we are most intrigued about for this USC season as we now formally start preparing for a season, doing the traditional uh, preview coverage and build-up and lead-up to a, to a real season, finally. Now, Max and I have not compared our list, so we may have some overlap. We may not. I think we, we normally have, uh, <clears throat> have some different we perspectives have on this, which is good. Yeah, we, almost um, have, we have a couple overlaps sometimes, but I have a feeling we might be uh, all, all over the park today. Well, why don't you start with your number one storyline you are most interested in for this 2020 USC football season? My number one storyline that I'm most interested in, and USC fans will, uh, will get riled up about this one, but uh, how does the 2020 season, now that we know it's being played, how does it impact Clay Helton's hot seat? And I think that's a narrative that um, – we forget as COVID started, right? Back in spring, it was, hey, Clay Helton had the hottest seat in the country. Now you don't hear as much of that. And I think the answer to my own question is, I think Clay Helton gets another pass, for lack of a better term, this season. <laughs> I think with all that's going on in the world and all that's happening, assuming USC doesn't just go winless or win just two games, which I just don't think that's going to happen, I think Clay Helton is back no matter what in 2021. And so that's an interesting dynamic in a world where we don't really know what the next month has in store for us, uh, I think consistency is very, very important when you start moving into the next calendar year. And so once again, I know there's a lot of SC fans that looked last year and thought he got a pass last year with a new AD. Well, I think it's going to happen this year no matter what. And pass is kind of a tough term. If USC runs the table, uh, I, I don't think pass is doing, to do, do, doing it justice. I think he deserves to, to get another shot. But... I think you all understand the point I'm trying to make in that another season will go by where I don't know if he's truly going to have to answer for potentially not living up to the standard where SC is at. And so that storyline super interesting, interesting to me if things don't go great for USC. And let's say USC goes 4-2 and two or something. Like the mold we've kind of fallen into – that is something I'm very interested to uh, to see how the temperature of that reacts in the fan base and in the athletic department. I think you're largely correct there. I, I think that if they were to go three and four, I think that it's probably untenable to move forward and you got to make a change. Four and three, yeah. But I, I do think that there will be a lot of leeway given to the unusual circumstances uh, also, some credit given to the uh, recruiting 
renaissance yep. this year and getting that back on track. And I, I think you're probably right that he probably has a lot more leash than, than maybe people thought he had even in training last year. It is it is fascinating. It's it's probably unparalleled in college football, honestly. Yeah, what no, he's going there, there's going to be an incredible article written by, hey, maybe you, maybe someone else of just that whole – it's a hot seat like we've never seen before, and I think it will be it's, very interesting in the next calendar year. Totally unparalleled. I mean, to go five and seven and be retained, largely because you just signed a huge extension and the school's not going to move off that, and the AD who just gave you that extension is not going to admit his error, to then have the worst recruiting class in the history of USC – and a, a middling eight and five season, and yet you walk into a situation where with a new president and a new AD, and for whatever reason the timing was not right to move on. Everyone agreed, let's keep it going, let's build up around him. Then you walk into a pandemic where yeah. you, you have to you have to cut anyone a little slack for this because this is just so unusual that that has to be factored in. It's it's an un, unparalleled sequence in college football history but you know what let's let's hope that it's not even a, a talking point and that usc is is uh well on the way to a great season this year and, and that answers a lot of questions but i i agree with your point i think he has a lot more leash than maybe he would ordinarily okay my number one is uh and i've been excited for this since the day this guy was hired tyler lando man we saw it last year we saw what a coordinator and staff overhaul on one side of the ball can do with Graham Harrell and the offensive guys coming in last year. And really, I, I thought just elevating that unit so significantly that it accounted for that difference between five and seven and eight and five. That, that to me was just, just give, it, give that all to Graham Harrell. Just give him those three wins last year. What if Todd Orlando and an entirely new defensive staff can do the same thing? And this has been my ma- main point in why I'm bullish on these Trojans, as I was back in the spring and back when we thought there was going to be a full season, uh, and I still am now. I don't think the offense is going to regress. And we'll get into the offensive line and stuff, and that's definitely a question. But they're going to be what, what they are, and they're going to put up a lot of points. If Tyler Orlando can just make a decent impact and get the defense, maybe they're giving up six or seven less points a game, what does that mean? I mean, that can mean two more wins itself alone. I mean, I guess the math doesn't translate in a six-game schedule, but it, it could mean a, a nice percentage increase. And Or it doesn't happen, and we find out that the defense is still, is still a mess. Either way, it's the most compelling storyline to me. I personally am a believer, as I've stated on many podcasts here, in his track record, in the staff they hired, in his history of making an early impression in his first year at places, in the fact that I think the talent is actually there across the defense, even with losing Jay Tufeli to the opt-out. They are loaded with talent. And their main area of question, the linebackers, is his main area of expertise. And so, to me, what can Tyler Orlando do? That is the storyline of this season. I love that point, and we're kind of playing off each other because my my second uh, storyline plays off yours, and that is how big of an advantage does USC's experience and the amount of guys they have with playing experience 
play this season. And what I'm talking about is in a limited off season where there was no spring ball and a lot of, and they have a lot of big time positions returning, uh, that should be a huge advantage versus some of these other teams. I, I think of an Oregon that has to replace their offensive line. I think of an Arizona who's breaking in a new quarterback. I think of Utah who's breaking in a grad transfer quarterback. USC, yes, they have a new defensive coordinator in Todd Orlando, but in terms of players coming back that have seen real-life reps, I think USC is in a great position. And so the storyline for me is how big of an advantage does that end up being? Do we see that uh, showing face when you talk about USC ideally getting off to a hot start? And yes, they have to break in a new defensive coordinator, but to me, breaking in a new defensive coordinator is is night and day easier than an offensive coordinator. And so I would expect USC to stop, start hot relative to some of these other schools, a Colorado and Arizona, that schools that may not could have or could have really really used a spring ball. And so that storyline for me is something that I'll have my eye on, especially in these first two weeks where you can't miss a beat. You got to start hot. Excuse me from the very uh, very first uh, drive. Yep, great points, and. Um... I'm going to kind of stick with the same theme for my third one that I was on with the second one and just kind of expound upon it. The linebackers. I think that the two most pivotal positions on this team in 2020 are obviously the offensive line, which I'll get to later, and the linebackers. But since I'm on the Tyler Orlando topic, I want to just stay with that and talk about the linebackers. I think that there's a ton of talent there. There's actually a ton of depth there. It's, it's just all unproven depth. But they are not lacking for you know, highly rated recruits and guys who are itching to make uh, a name for themselves and to get their opportunity and to prove themselves in a large group. Let me just run through the names. The expectation, of course, is going to be that, that EA, uh, Paul EA, Naotote, and Jordan Iosefa will be your starting inside linebackers. That's just what I was told back in the spring. Nothing's changed since then that I'm aware of, so I would bank on that. But who else do you have there? You have Raylan Goforth, a guy that I was sky high on as a recruit coming in last year. Didn't play much. You have Kanai Malga, who we did see a bunch last year. Uh, was up and down. Definitely has some holes in this game, but also made some really big plays. You have Solomon Tulio Pupu, who has not played yet due to uh, a major foot injury that just has knocked him out for two seasons. He told us all in the spring, hey, I'm back. I'm, I'm ready to go. This is my year. So we'll see what happens there. You have, you have Taylor Katoa, who comes back from a, a mission, a church mission, that cost him two years. Now he's back in the mix. You have Tua Sivinamora. You have Manoa Tofono. All these names, I mean, we don't know who's going to emerge from that group, but you got to think a couple of those guys are probably going to elevate from what they've been and be ready to break out in some form. And you have the veterans in EA and ISFA who – probably haven't ever reached their ceiling or the, the full potential that maybe we all saw for them. Well, does that happen with Tyler Orlando, who, again, coaches the linebackers, has a nice track record of elevating guys. And I, when he was hired, I did this story for the site, and I'll revive it here in, in the coming weeks. There are several case examples of guys who immensely elevated their play in their first year in his system at linebacker. It happened at Houston. It happened at Texas. Um, it, it happened at, at uh, Utah State. So there's enough evidence to say it's not a coincidence that he's made a pretty good impact at that position. And 
I still think that EA is an immensely talented player. I just really hasn't ever seen to put it all together, hasn't ever seemed to look totally comfortable out there. And I don't know if it just was the way he was used or he just never fully grasped Clancy's uh, system and all it required from him or he just never played free enough. I think that they're going to find a way to tap into to more of what he can do best and that we see the best version of EA this year. So to me, the linebackers, which goes hand-in-hand with the overall defensive upgrades that we're hoping for, I think the linebackers are pivotal, and I think that there's enough tangible historical proof that Tyler Orlando can make a difference in that area that I'm going to confidently bet that we see a better version of that group this season. I love that. And having played with Jordan Iacefa, he's a guy that obviously missed out last year. As a captain, was kind of unheard of usually. I mean, usually usually, usually you play, and so excited for him to get back. Um, but for my third storyline, I'll go to a different position group. And for me, it's the offensive line. And if my second storyline was how big of an advantage will USC's be, experience be, this storyline will be how big of a disadvantage will the lack of reps be for the offensive line and especially the tackles. And I can get uh, down to Elijah Vera Tucker and, and maybe a different storyline. But to me, I think having played at USC, having played collegiate football, spring ball is so, so, so important for offensive line to, one, for coaches to kind of find out what you truly have, who truly has made strides, and then, two, uh, for those guys to just get experience, especially young guys. There's something to be said about I mean, at any position group, but especially offensive line when you're a lot of these guys coming out of high school, they're just bigger than everyone in high school and they can get away with a lot of things. It takes a couple years to get experience to really kind of hone your craft. Um, as I said out loud, Zach Banner is a great example of a guy who the reality is he did not get off to a good start at USC, get some experience later on in his career, start some good years at USC. And, and before he got hurt a couple weeks ago was a starting right tackle uh, for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And so uh, back to the original point, uh, it, it's all great that USC has the receivers. It's great they have Keaton Slovis. They have a stable of backs. But at the end of the day, if you aren't getting it done up front, it is very hard to operate as an offense at whole. And I, I know last year uh, I was ex- hoping and expecting the offensive line to be a little bit better than what they were. They weren't bad by any means, but I was hoping they would take a little bit more of a step. And this year with Austin Jackson leaving, with Elijah Vera Tucker as of now leaving, uh, I think it's safe to say that they're not going to take a huge step. But now it's a matter of whether they'll, they will be a weakness for the team and potentially holding the team back. And so that, to me, is something I'll have my eye on, especially the right and left tackle. How do those guys adjust? Does it become a huge pain point where Graham Harrell's not able to operate his full offense and Keaton Slovis isn't able to show his full skill set? And uh, will the lack of offseason and the lack of reps end up being – uh, the Achilles heel at the offensive line, especially especially the offensive tackle position uh, for USC this year. Yep, that's my next one as well. And, and honestly, yeah. I mean, it could be as high as number one on this list because there is so much uncertainty and so much at stake up there. We saw Keaton Slovis get hit pretty hard last year. We saw him miss games uh, for a couple of different injuries. And now we already knew that it was going to be a question mark with Elijah Vera Tucker filling that left tackle spot. There's still questions about the line. He's opted out. There's been a lot of people asking, will he reconsider? A lot of players nationally have reconsidered after opting out. Now, this is where you've got to say that it's still open-ended 
as to what happens with Elijah Vera Tucker. We asked Clay Helton about that last Friday when we had him uh, the day after the Pac-12 news. We had a Zoom conference call with media and, and Clay and a couple of players. And I asked him a couple times, a couple different ways about it. Uh, someone else asked him a question about it. And he said, you know, I've, conversations are ongoing. Every guy has to make the right decision for themselves. And I pressed him. I said, but does that mean it's still open-ended with Elijah and uh, Jay Tufeli on the defensive side? And he said, yeah, it's, it's open-ended. So we don't know what's going to happen there yet. And obviously, it's a game-changer if Elijah Vera Tucker comes back. He's going to be a, a guard at the next level, but he would obviously plug in as USC's left tackle if he's back, and that alleviates the major question mark on this roster, on this team. Uh, but let's just have the conversation that if he doesn't, if he continues to to opt out and say, you know what, I'm just going to get ready for the NFL. I feel like my stock's high enough. I don't want to risk it, risk injury, risk whatever. Um, I'm out. Then what? Not only did they lose their two starting tackles from last year, not only did they lose their projected replacement left tackle on Vera Tucker, but they don't have any like ready-made tackles just waiting in the pipeline at the play. They have a lot of depth of guard. You know, you have uh, Jalen McKenzie, who's obviously going to move out the tackle, but you have uh, Liam Jimmins, Andrew Voorhees, uh, Justin Dietich, Liam Douglas. All those guys you could project as saying, okay, well, uh, if someone goes down, they can step up at guard. Well, it's great when you have a bunch of answers at guard, but you still have two holes to fill a tackle. So is Jalen McKenzie going to play left tackle now? It was already going to be a um, a jump for him to move out to a full-time right tackle role. Is Are any of the freshmen going to be ready? You have six six freshmen coming in this year. I think the two that get the most attention are Jonah Monheim and Cortland Ford. Are they going to be in the mix? Is Jason Rodriguez, a redshirt freshman, ready to take the next step? I mean, I think a lot of those guys could maybe be an answer or a competitor at right tackle. Um, but now you're asking Jalen McKenzie to go from right guard to right tackle to left tackle without really any games having happened. Yeah. So the only thing I would add it, to your point, too, is in my opinion, I think guard is the easiest position. And let me, let me see if I can, yeah, one of the easiest position, if not the easiest position, to plug and play a guy. And so it's a lot harder to find bodies at tackle and have guys yeah. operate on the edge than it is to teach a physical, athletic guy. Worse comes to worse to play in the guard position, and not and not to mention centers and, and tackles can communicate and help those guys. And I've seen that story play out before. But left and right tackle is a different ball game. Well, Max, give us a, a perspective that only you can as a former college quarterback. What, what's your biggest concern when you have a guy in there who is not totally established to tackle? I mean, how, how much does that kind of seep into your thinking pre-snap? Yeah, I think the perfect example for me, I'm trying to think back on our years played. We had some injury problems middle of my beginning to middle of my USC career, and it was awesome to have Max Turk in the dead center, and he could literally talk 
to a young Khalil Rogers and an inexperienced Jordan Simmons and like tell them what to do uh, when it got to that point of, of getting down in the depth charts. Uh, and as I said that out loud, I'm pretty sure uh, Jordan Simmons was was plug was forced to plug and play at a right tackle late, which might have to be uh, a similar situation this year. Jordan Simmons is playing for the Seattle Seahawks, so it wasn't a bad uh, plug and play. But at the time, it was a little bit of a question mark. And for me, the biggest just concern is, I mean, you want to operate your offense. You want to get the ball out. If you're having outside edge rushers and blitzes and you're not able to pick things up, there is nothing you can do about it. There is absolutely nothing you can do about it. And as I say that out loud, that is the one caveat with the air raid offense that we have seen it with Mike Leach's offense where their offensive line is nothing impressive at all. But because of the scheme, because of the quick passes and because of all the edge plays and edge pressures, of all the offenses in, in football, that the air raid is the one that you can at least hide a weaker offensive line. But as we've talked about many times on this podcast, USC's running the air raid, but they have way more of a run game flair than a lot of air raid offenses do. And I can't blame them with the backs they have. So all those things kind of come, come in my mind and the quarterback in me just doesn't want to get killed. So you want offensive yeah. line and you want to find answers at tackle. Well, I mean, even last year, I think more games than not, we had criticisms about the run blocking. It, and that's why the whole Marquis Step narrative emerged so much because he was the one guy who could, could really create his own yards and and overcome some of that. Um, you have to imagine that that's going to carry over this year, and that they're not going to have ideal run blocking with all the the shuffling they're having to do. Um, Keaton's going to have to be faster, and I think that you would naturally expect him in the second year to be even a little quicker in decision-making and to be more cognizant that, hey, I can't hold on to this ball too long. I can't take this hit. Uh, I need to protect protect myself. Um, obviously, if he goes down and it's it's the Matt Fink show and it's going to be Fink a bit of a roller coaster. <laughs> it's going to be a bit of a roller coaster. So keeping Keaton Slovis on the field is, is priority numero uno for this team. But, yeah, I, I don't – I sitting today, I can't tell you exactly – what their starting line is going to be. And I had a pretty good idea, obviously, when Elijah was here. Uh, but now I would say it's I, – I guess that Jalen McKenzie is probably the left tackle. I guess T- that today, – Today, yeah. yeah, what's your guess across the board, left to right tackle? What's your guess? I would go uh, McKenzie, left tackle. Uh, Voorhees, if he's healthy, left guard. Remember, he missed all of last season with a foot injury and – I haven't gotten any assurance or clearance yet that he's full go. But if he's healthy, left guard, Nealon center, um, Dietrich or Douglas, right guard, and Liam Jimmins moving out from guard to tackle. Yeah, I like I, it. I, I, th- I can't tell you how important it is for if you can have one of those young guys step up. My true freshman year, Chad Wheeler was the perfect example of that. Now he's an NFL player, but at the time he was a low-level recruit. He literally gained 75 pounds in his redshirt year and started at left tackle for USC for four years. And it was, you expect, everyone you recruit, you expect to hopefully play, but I, I think he definitely excelled and exceeded expectations, and it's so important for your roster. If you can get one of those guys to pop, and especially for depth, even like I'm cool with that starting line, you gotta you gotta manage. But for depth, that's a huge concern as well. If you can get one of those guys to to really turn the corner. Well, going back to the the six incoming guys, I can tell you that they were sky high on Jonah Monheim, 
And he was a four-star recruit. He was just outside of our Rivals 250 rankings. And um, I know that there are people in that building who thought he was one of the most underrated guys in that entire recruiting class. So he's certainly a guy to look toward. Cortland Ford was a three-star signing out of Texas. But he's just an impressive physical body. He battled some injuries late in high school that probably hurt his ranking. But I think that he's a guy that a lot of us are taking a close look at and seeing if maybe he advances quickly. And then, uh, you know, Jason Rodriguez is the redshirt freshman. I, I didn't think he was ready last year based on what I saw. But Tim Drevno did praise his improvement to me in an interview we did back in, in May or June. And he's a, a really physically impressive guy. The key for him is just his footwork, his nimbleness, his mobility, I thought was what he had to work on the most. I thought he was a little stiff at times. But strength-wise, size-wise, he brings all that to the table. So if he's improved in those, those other areas, maybe he is in that mix at right tackle. And that would be a great uh, boon for USC to have the only tackle they signed in the 2019 class be ready to emerge in some way. So a lot of questions, and I don't know if maybe all the answers are going to be immediately had. Maybe there's there's some shuffling during the season two, which will just uh, exacerbate the, uh, the questions and uncertainty there. Max, what's your number four? My number four is, uh, I guess we kind of talked about it already a little bit, so I'll, I'll keep it uh, keep it quick, but what happens to the guys that declared to leave early? Uh, when you talk about Elijah uh, Vera Tucker and Jay Tufele, we, we talked in the last podcast, I think Jay Tufele has less to gain than Elijah Vera Tucker does in coming back. Uh, if Vera Tucker moves to left tackle and succeeds there, and if he puts up a year like he did last year at left guard – his draft stock could skyrocket, and he if he's a verse if if his mo becomes I'm a versatile offensive lineman that is a offensive line coach's dream in the NFL when rosters are very very slim. So I think Elijah Vera Tucker has a lot more to gain. I could see him coming back. I don't know the ins and outs of their agent situation and what they've done, but those two guys. It's a big help. I mean, we just spent five, ten minutes talking about offensive line. If you get a big-time playmaker there, that's a sigh of relief for uh, for Tim Drevno. And then on the defensive line side, I expect a J2 fella. I think he is the perfect 3-4 defensive end, assuming that is Todd Orlando's M.O. there because he's quick enough to operate on the edge but big enough to hold his own inside and take on double teams, which defensive ends are going to have to do in that scheme. So both those guys, interested to see uh, – being, close, being young enough to, to be close to the locker room, I would be willing to bet that their phones were blowing up yesterday with teammates trying to get him to come back, trying to get him to come back. And I think the, uh, the pressure, for better or worse, uh, as, as a youngster wanting to help your buddies out, wanting to play, uh, I mean, they, they, everyone experienced it these past couple of weeks, right? Being on your couch, watching other guys play and, and, and across the country and being like, dang, I want to play. You better believe there's going to be a sense of that for J2 Fele and Elijah Vera Tucker. If they're sitting on their couch or they're at their training facilities and their boys are playing on Saturdays, that's going to be tough to watch. So not sure personally how those guys, how that nets out with both those guys, but that's definitely uh, storyline number four for me. Well, again, just to go back to our conversation with Clay Helton on Friday, he was also asked about it on Trojans Live on Monday about those guys. It has been reported that, J2 Feli was one of the early opt-outs who did link up with an agent. And Clay was asked about that Friday, and he said, well, there, there's he wasn't speaking directly to Jay. It was more of a general question. 
They said there's been waivers granted at other schools for guys who have reconsidered that decision. And given the uniqueness of the situation, that if if Jay had signed with an agent and did want to come back, they would certainly pursue a waiver from the NCAA. Uh, Ohio State just had two big guys come back, and Wyatt Davis, their offensive lineman, and one of their top defensive backs, Sean Wade. I don't know what their agent status was, but I think there's some leniency and um, perspective being granted for for those guys that didn't think they were going to have a season and now have a choice to make about an actual season. So, well, I'm sure we'll find out. I would guess this week or next week about about both those guys. It could be any day now as to what happens, but I think both are definitely still in play. Uh, but nothing's changed as of yet. My number four is a guy who didn't opt out, who many were looking at and wondering if he would, Amon Ross St. Brown, who you know clearly played a huge role in that open letter to Gavin Newsom. He was the one that kind of put it out there first. I want to see if he can take a Michael Pittman-esque leap his junior year. And I think Amon Ross St. Brown has been everything that USC hoped he would be the first two years. It's not that he has anything to prove. He's been an exceptional player. He played through a sports hernia all last season that was immensely painful and cost him practice time, and we didn't really even know about it until the end of the year, and he still put up awesome numbers. But he has always wanted to be an outside receiver, and that has not been a possibility in an offense that had Tyler Vaughns and Michael Pittman as primary outside receivers. So he has sacrificed, for lack of a better word. He has played a lot in the slot he has played some outside he's moved around but his his expectation and mine and you know i talked to him back in june for a big story about this is that he's gonna get a, a true chance to be a mostly full-time outside receiver this year and show that he can be a major weapon in that way too and i think that just based on what he's done to this point you'll still see him move around because there are things in that offense that he runs very well out of the slot and uh, even out of the backfield at times. So I think he'll be a a versatile piece moved around that offense, but I want to see if he can settle into that outside role that he's wanted for a few years and if that leads to a, just a statistical bonanza for Amon Ross St. Brown that helps to vault him from wherever he's projected right now into maybe uh, a bit higher, maybe a fringe first-round guy, uh, early-second-round guy, whatever. I love that. Yeah, I think he, you mentioned he doesn't have anything to prove, and I, I agree with you, but I think for his own NFL draft stock, uh, this is a big year, whether is he a slot receiver or is he just a receiver that can play everywhere? And I think this year will, uh, in terms of his NFL trajectory, definitely uh, definitely dictate that for sure. But uh, for me, my, my fifth and final... Uh, uh, a big, big storyline actually was the scheduling. I think that is the most, it's the most fascinating thing to me with all this of how that plays out. But we already talked about it at length, so I won't get into it. So instead, I'll actually just bring up a point, and I don't know the answer to this, Ryan. Maybe you do, but uh, the eligibility stuff. I, I believe I haven't heard anyone talk about that. Last I heard, and I could be totally wrong, so Ryan, uh, cut me off if if not. But uh, last I heard is this year is not going to count towards your eligibility whether it was play or not that when and that was dictated when the sec was playing and pac-12 wasn't and it was kind of divided they kind of viewed it as this year is a wash 
And but long term, that has big implications. It has implications for the 85 scholarships. It has implications for depth charts and all that. And so that's just an interesting factor, Ryan. I don't know if you've heard anything about that at all, of how that's going to play out. But that's something I kind of just have my eye on that I don't hear anyone talking about that I miss you to see how that plays out long term. Yeah, it's a great point. Back in back in August, the NCAA Board of Governors voted to approve a measure to extend eligibility for all fall sports athletes for a year. And even though now all almost all football conferences are back on track playing, I have not seen anything to counteract that or to say that's being reconsidered. So uh, essentially, per the decision that was made, uh, everyone gets an extra year. And it won't be an issue on scholarship limits next year because uh, built into that was additional flexibility for the 2021-2022 uh, school year in terms of scholarship limits for fall sports, including football. But there's not been anything for the years beyond that. And if it applies to every player, then you've got to start factoring that into your numbers crunch and recruiting moving forward. That's something I would like to be able to ask some people about before I speak too authoritatively on it. But I I do know that is where things stand loosely. Uh, I don't know the full big picture ramifications. I'd like to talk to Clay Helton or talk to uh, someone in the USC athletic department about that and get a little more clarity on how that all plays out and manifest. But it's a great point, and it's something that I think we'll be discussing a lot more in the future. I'm surprised it really hasn't been talked about as much to this point, but there's been so many more pressing uh, immediate issues to deal with. But definitely something for us to revisit in a future discussion, and hopefully I I or you have a little bit more insight into all the details of that situation and what it means big next year and big picture. And, sure. and just to add on to that, just I mean, to a real-life example is – a guy like a Raylan Goforth, who in his mind, in his talks with his family, is probably saying, all right, I'll have to sit maybe one more year, sit behind EA, sit behind uh, uh, some, some of these other older guys, and, and then I'll get my turn. Well, if if the eligibility is a wash, sitting behind a Jordan ISFS, sorry, I was struggling to come up with that name, but uh, sitting behind those guys, uh, well, if that doesn't happen, then he has to wait another full year. And in reality, it's two full years of actual time. And so for guys like that, uh, especially quarterbacks, I mean, if it was, I know Matt Fink is actually older um, than Keaton Slovis, but if it was a young Max Brown sitting behind a Cody Kessler and Cody got another year of eligibility, like, I mean, the reality is I probably would have at least had my eye on transferring, seeing what that looks like, because you have to play. You have to get going, and all those things are uh, very, very interesting, and it's the nuances that we won't know. We won't have to see the light of it in 2020, but in 2021 and beyond will be uh, front of mind for sure. Definitely. Well, my fifth one is also kind of a, a, a nebulous, untangible thing. I just like the fact that there's no margin for error this season. And that's really what we love about college football to begin with, is that every loss is just so damning and uh, such a major setback. But even more so this year, like every game is going to be so huge. You can't have the logic of, oh, it was an early season game. You know, we'll, we'll overcome this and bounce back. Like if you're legitimately thinking about the college football playoff, and you're in the Pac-12, 
uh, USC can't lose to Arizona State. Like that's just that's that's yeah. game over. That, that's 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 end game. So the stakes that are going to be present each week and just the drama of this season is so tantalizing and exciting. And I just I'm getting excited just talking about it. Like it's going to be basically six playoff games and then the the seventh week. Um, so you, you'd rather have a full season. You'd rather have everything be normal. But accepting that we're not in that case and this is what we have, uh, if I want to skew positive, it's going to be really fun just going into each week knowing that from game one, game two, every single game is just immensely important and everything's at, at stake each week. Because of all the guys USC has coming back, USC has a tremendous opportunity to change the narrative drastically, 180, in a matter of seven games. And I'm not saying it's going to solve everything, but if USC were to run the table, even if they don't get in the college football playoff, or even if they were to just lose one game, and we'll see how that loss is, but they're able to have a good year or a respectable year or not a year where people are up in arms kind of thing. You saw what we did this offseason with a terrible loss in the bowl game, yet still able to flip the script recruiting-wise and have a good recruiting class right now. Well, if USC turns in a good schedule, and I expect them to start fast like we talked about because of everything they have coming back, they could really flip the script of the narrative of where the program's at and come 2021, really be full steam ahead with, at that point, having an experienced, experienced quarterback in Keaton Slovis, hopefully have a lot of continuity on the staff, and then hopefully, uh, it, it, that same way with the narrative, if they're able to cash in on this recruiting class and in a world where everything's chaotic, that recruits don't decommit and that doesn't happen and they kind of stick with their guns and they sign on the dotted line, USC could be positioned very well come 2021 if they take advantage of a hot start and just cash in some wins and they don't have to worry about a 13-game schedule where they might stub their foot on the road against Oregon State or something like that. Like, I don't think that's that mindset is just not going to happen this year because every game is going to be so precious, uh, and I think players are going to approach it that way. So huge opportunity for USC for sure. Yeah, and, and many of the fans listening right now are saying, well, sure, I'll believe it when I see it. But you're right, Max. That opportunity is right there for them. It is very much there for them, and – we're just excited to be able to talk about it. No doubt. Going to be uh, – we still have to wait freaking six weeks, but uh, it's going to be fun <laughs> when it's here. Well, we'll, we'll have a, a training camp to cover in some form or fashion. Um, I, I don't expect that us media folk will be allowed out there as the campus is still closed to the public, but we'll be doing stuff via Zoom, I'm sure, and, and getting insight any way we can and covering it from all angles and – because of that, because I don't expect that we're going to be on campus for practices as media, I'm still planning to be on the road much of October for recruiting stuff as USC tries to tie up this 21 class and uh, make headway in the 22 class where they've already landed uh, their second commit last week in quarterback Devin Brown out of Arizona in the 22 class. So uh, Trojansports.com will be on the road for recruiting. We'll be covering everything back here in Los Angeles, team-wise, and getting you ready for the season. But always fun to do it with you, buddy. Always fun. No, can't wait for the next one, and uh, thanks, everyone, for checking this out.